heard something hilarious. I hope you're happy. You're all having a great time. All right, so I got a question for you this morning. Um, are we moving right now? Yeah. Stop. You're ruining the whole thing. Look around. Are you moving? No. You're supposed to say no. Look around. You're not moving. We're all sitting still. But if we're on the sun, of course, looking at planet Earth, we are moving, right? Like really, really fast. Yeah. See, you guys, you ruin, you ruined the whole introduction. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But it, now, however, though, go back to 1500. Were, were we moving in 1500? <laughs> See, in 1500, Copernicus had not yet published a heliocentric understanding of the universe. So everybody thought, believed that the earth was, so what was true? What was actually true? Truth is true no matter what you happen to believe or think. Uh, truth is impossible to find, though, or to understand, or to recognize, unless we have a fixed point of reference. Have you ever been sailing or out on a boat in Lake Michigan, where, or the ocean, where you get far enough away that you can't see the land? Been out there? Okay, so if, if that happens, you have no idea whether you're moving or not, whether you're going north, south, east, or west, unless you have a fixed point of reference. It's actually kind of eerie to be out in the middle of the ocean or Lake Michigan and not be able to see because you don't really know. Now, obviously, when the stars come out, you can kind of look at the sun. Like, there's all kinds of ways that, that we've learned, but if you don't have any of those things, there's no way to know where you're going, if you're going anywhere, if you're moving up, down, left, right, north, south, east, west. To understand truth requires that there is a fixed point. I want to give you guys just like a quick little uh, history lesson, okay? So since the Enlightenment comes, we've got what's kind of described as the modern age, that's scientific method, that's kind of how we figure out what truth is and what truth is not. And, and then um, postmodernism comes on the scene. Now, uh, postmodernism really became popular in the United States probably in about the 70s. Uh, really up until about the early 2000s, to be honest. Uh, it probably took hold of postmodern thinking, had been around for even before then. Uh, it was more popular even in Europe before it was here in the States. But uh, really, it kind of asked the question this, um, or made the statement this what's true for you may not be true for me. Postmodern thought might also say uh, there's no such thing as absolute or objective truth. Okay, and even if there is, there's no way for anybody to actually know it. Uh, both statements, though, uh, unfortunately, are self-defeating for postmodernism. Okay, they're unlivable because any denial of objective truth is an objective truth claim, and so therefore it, it kind of shoots itself in the foot. Uh, there's a guy, his name is Abdu Murray, and, and a lot of what you're getting today is actually from a book that I uh, recently read. It came out uh, just, I think, like a couple, few weeks ago. It's called Saving Truth. Uh, Abdu Murray actually uh, is from Michigan. Um, he speaks uh, with Rodney Zacharias Ministry. Uh, he was, uh, he's a U of M grad, uh, went on to U of M Law School, uh, was a devout Muslim um, who, over about eight years, 
of really seeking truth, uh, engaged with scripture, and came to believe in Jesus. Uh, and now is a devout Christian, and, and he's a brilliant thinker. Um, he was one of the top lawyers in, in the nation for a number of years, and uh, Christ had really just captured his heart. And so uh, he just recently wrote a book, and, and, I, and I want to discuss some of those concepts a little bit uh, this morning. So uh, what he says, though, and I, and I love this, uh, he says, despite its incoherence, postmodernism was quite resilient and remained influential in the West for decades. However, its luster has finally dulled, and like a mustard burp, its tang is momentary and passive. <laughs> I love that. It's disgusting, but it's so true, right? You go to the, you go to White Cat's Gate, you have a hot dog with some mustard, you burp invariably, and you get that nasty mustard tang, and, but thankfully it goes away. So, that's kind of what postmodernism is, alright? A lot of folks think postmodernism is still kind of ruling the day, but for the most part, it's really not. Most people realize that it's just untenable, it, it's incoherent, as a belief system. Uh, what he says, though, is that we have now moved from postmodernism into a post-truth culture. All right? Uh, in fact, in 2016, post-truth was actually the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year. <laughs> post-truth culture, he says, is a uh, the post-truth culture of confusion elevates preferences and feelings over facts and truth. By elevating our preferences to be liked and feel accepted, Christians have misapplied the plain truth of Jesus' words and exchanged them for pleasant cultural comforts. And then he goes on and he quotes Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard wrote this a number of years ago. Dallas Willard uh, passed away a few years ago. Dallas Willard said this, Most of what Americans do in their religion now is done at the behest of feelings. The quest for pleasure takes over the house of God. Have you ever wanted to believe something even though it may not have been true. Nobody's going to say yes to that, really. I mean, right? Like, you're going to be like, no, man, I'm just, like, truth matters to me. I'm always about the truth. Here's the problem, though, okay? I think that it's true for everybody. In fact, sadly, for Christians, uh, it happens just as often. Sometimes I wonder if not more. Snopes has actually been keeping track of all the fake news stories that have come out just in 2018, all right? Uh, would you like to take them? These are actual fake news stories that have been shared on social media uh, as though they were real. Some of them you look at it like, are you kidding? Like, seriously, are you kidding me? Like, it's so obviously satire, but people will still see it. They'll see the headline. They'll be like, I knew this was going to happen. They'll post something. Sometimes it'll have like a small little smidge kernel of truth that's been totally taken out of context. Uh, um, there's all kinds of even hubbub this week with the new Time magazine cover, right? Guess how many articles they've tracked since January of 2018. Yes, what do you think? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> 
sometimes takes a while. I, I, I haven't said anything about uh, the crisis at the border. Uh, I, I, I'm not afraid to speak out on social issues because I actually think that as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor, as a leader within the church, I have a responsibility to try to speak biblically, faithfully biblically. But I'll be, I'll be honest, like, sometimes I'm not sure. I don't know, like, because I'm not sure if I'm really getting the facts. It kind of depends on where the story's coming from. What, what angle somebody wants to discuss or talk about. So I didn't post anything until Tuesday morning. And I do believe that if, in fact, the United States government is purposefully separating families to try as a deterrent, that that is not a biblically faithful position that a Christian can support. All right? It's not an issue of politics for me. I don't care. I don't care who started it. I don't care who, who's actually in power right now. It's, what I do care about is that I'm trying to live faithfully to what Scripture wants me to do. About 30 minutes after I posted, President Trump signed an executive order saying that he was no longer allowing that practice to continue. I think I'm the reason. I mean, it was pretty. But my point with all that is uh, um, my dad actually saw the post and he didn't realize that I had posted it just before uh, the executive order. And so he actually posted on, on that and just said, uh, why did you decide to say something about it after the fact? And why didn't you say anything uh, a week ago? That's a fair question. That's my dad, so my dad can kind of ask me whatever he wants to. And so I told him, well, actually, I did post it a little before. I told him I was the reason. Uh, but I also said, part of the, part of the difficulty is I, it's hard to get a straight story. Like, I'll be honest, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, that's just like liberal media agenda. Because that can't be true. <laughs> right? And, and then you're like, well, where did it start? Who, who did it? Uh, you know, something that happened before. And, and so it's hard sometimes. And that's kind of the world that we live in. Where facts don't matter. Truth isn't as important as my feelings or what I want to be true. That's what it means to live in a post-truth culture. And Christians do it just as much. Avi Murray actually cites a story that I had heard that got passed all around Facebook of some Christians that, that uh, saw a particular, uh, supposedly, a particular lawsuit that was coming to make the Bible hate speech and that this thing was going to happen and it started getting passed around. See, I knew this was going to happen. But the problem was the story was not true. It had a kernel of truth. It was a wacko in Michigan that back in 2008, a long time ago, had tried to say that the Bible was hate speech and it, it still was thrown out of court. If you do like a 30 second Google search, you'd have found that. But Christians, sometimes we want to believe some of the same things, right? So we kind of twist the truth a little bit, twist facts a little bit to make it say what we want it to say. Uh, I'd like to show you guys actually a clip. It's from uh, The Passion of Christ, which is out uh, over a decade ago, and yet in here we have a really great illustration on what this actually looks like. Now I got to set up the clip. Uh, Pontius Pilate has just been interacting with Jesus, 
And uh, Jesus and he have been having a conversation, not much of one because Jesus is mostly staying silent. Pontius Pilate is like, hey, are you going to answer me? And Jesus says this to him. Uh, Jesus tells Pilate that he's the truth. And then uh, all men who hear the truth hear my voice. To which Pilate replies, truth? What is truth? And instead of waiting for an answer, he uses that as an opportunity to storm out. And this is where we pick up the scene. Pontius Pilate is alone in the court, and his wife Claudia is about to walk in. With est veritas, Claudia. Em maudis. Em cognosis quando dicitur. Ita. Audio. Numet tu. Uomono. Potes mi dicere. Si non vis veritate maudire. Nemo, tibi dicere potest. Meritas. Vis meam veritatem cunoscere, Claudia. Rebeliones uprimebam inac stazione remota undicim annos. Si hunkno condemnabo, si ucaia fam, seditionem iniciaturum esse. Si ita condemnabo, discipuli eius iniciabunt. Uter libet sanguis e funditor. Cesar me monuit, Claudia. Bis monuit. Vice proxima. Ipse iuravit sanguis erit meus. Eces mea veritas. Sorry if you were sitting in the front row and you couldn't see the words, but he says, that is my truth. In fact, you know how many times he actually mentions the word truth in that scene? Four times. Four times he mentions the word truth. And yet truth gets subordinated to his feelings, what is going to work best for him. He says, that's my truth. And in fact, uh, Abdi Murray uh, says this about that scene. He says, Pilate wasn't a true skeptic. He was a cynic. A skeptic won't believe a truth claim until there is sufficient evidence. A cynic won't believe even if there is. So what are you? You're a skeptic or are you a cynic? A skeptic won't believe a truth claim until there is sufficient evidence. A cynic won't believe even if there is. A lot of times you think, well, I don't mean skeptic. Like, that's not good, but you shouldn't. <laughs> a healthy dose of skepticism is actually valuable. Because it says, hey, I want to make sure that I'm getting the truth before I stamp my seal of approval on this. There's nothing wrong with that. Now I'm not saying you want to go through life skeptical of everything and every person, every environment, and, but I am saying skepticism is not a bad thing. The Galatians, you could even say, that's a, a, a church in Galatia that Paul writes a letter to, says that they were skeptical. Now he doesn't use the word skeptical, what he explains that he says he, he, he praises them because they go to the scriptures to make sure that everything that he's saying is true. 
But we gotta be that way. We gotta be people who actually go and find the truth. Like, we don't have to be afraid of truth because we know who the author of truth is. People were freaking out when Copernicus said that the sun is the center of the universe. They said that's impossible. In fact, the church actually kicked Copernicus out. Said he was no longer a member of the church. In fact, he didn't actually publish his scientific findings until he was on his deathbed because he knew what it was going to mean. And it was actually the church that in many ways persecuted him. Now we're like, well, duh. <laughs> like, we, we believe that the sun is the center of the universe and we revolve around it. But at the time, it was like, there's no way. Look, we've got to be people who are about the truth. God's word will never contradict truth. It helps us maybe re-understand God's word. But the truth is always God's. So why does this matter? Why in the world am I talking about this? Why am I setting all this? Like you're like, we haven't even gotten into the Bible yet, Torah. Like the reason that this matters is because you cannot have freedom without boundaries. Let me give you one more quote from Abdi Murray talking about this post-truth culture. He says, while we typically understand freedom to be the power to exercise choice without constraint, freedom becomes chaotic in a system without constraint, in with autonomy for freedom. Freedom operates at its best within the confines of the truth, but boundaries are foreign to pure autonomy. So autonomy comes from two Greek root words. Auto, which just means self, and nomos, which means law, okay? So auto, nomos, self, law. Okay, so the autonomous person or autonomy is, is just basically somebody who's a law unto themselves. Alright? And the pursuit of autonomy is actually what we see today way more than the pursuit of freedom. There is a difference. So in a post-truth culture where preferences are actually raised above higher than truth, that's what we actually find ourselves wrestling with. Anything that challenges our preferences, even if a challenge is laced with facts, is deemed offensive and oppressive. The problem is, freedom allows you to be with God. Autonomy pretends you are God. Now, what does this have to do with our psalm series? What does this have to do with Psalms 119, which is the psalm that we're going to look at today? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Grab your Bible, open up to Psalms chapter 119. I'd like for us to spend some time looking at this psalm this morning. Psalm 119. Now, I know that it took us a long time to get to this point, all right? But we're actually going to bust through some stuff pretty quickly now that we find ourselves in Psalm 119. Now, with Psalm 119, you're like, how are you going to get through this thing quickly? It's literally the longest chapter in all of Scripture, all right? Like 170-some verses in this. What do you... So here's the deal. There's a few different themes that Psalm 119 deals with, and I'm going to talk about one in particular that has great relevance to what we've just been discussing. Psalm 119 is actually this beautiful love poem that David writes about God's Word. It's about Scripture. Uh, it's actually a poem uh, that's broken up into eight-verse stanzas. And the first stanza actually begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph. And then the next stanza begins with the Hebrew letter Bet, and then the next is Dalit and Gimel, and it goes on and on and on, and I don't remember all the rest of the Hebrew alphabet, so I can't explain it, but that's how it is. Actually, kind of like it starts with a, a what, what's that called when you like, 
Come on, English majors. When, when you have a word and then you like make stuff off the word. What? Acronym? Acrostic. Acrostic, yes. That's it. It was basically like a big acrostic poem about scripture. David's love of scripture. What scripture does. How beautiful it is. How relevant it is. How it helps us to live a life that is actually truly life. And so... David writes this particular psalm, and I'd like for us to look at some different verses throughout it that help us understand the theme that I want us to talk about today. So, what I'd love for you to do is open up to verses 9 through 11. We're going to start there, and I'm going to walk us through a couple of different verses that we find within this poem. Starting in verse 9 through 11, we read this. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? That word path is going to be called something that you'll see gets repeated. He says, by living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You've probably heard that verse before, haven't you? It's from Psalm 19. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. All right, there is a path that is best to be on. All right, that's the main kind of point there. There is a path that is best to be on. So there are some paths that are better than other paths. All right, jump all the way to verse 105 with you. Verse 105. 105, we read this. Again, another verse you've probably heard before. Your word is a lamp for my feet. For my feet, a light on my path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. God's word illuminates the path that is best to be on. Jump with me now to verse 96. It says this. To all perfection I see a limit. I love that. There's such poetry in that. To all perfection, I see a limit. But your commands, your word, your law are boundless. God's word has boundless blessings to offer. God's word has boundless blessings to offer. Jump now to 127 and 128. He says, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. So not only are there paths that are right, that God's word illuminates, that bring unbelievable blessing into our lives, but there are also paths that do not lead to freedom. Paths that will not lead to life. And he says, I hate these wrong paths because I love your word. Alright? Now, jump with me to verse 176. 176, the very last verse. He says, I am strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servants, for I have not forgotten your commands. So this teaches us that when we stray, God doesn't leave us. Rather, he pursues us, and his commands, which is his word, leads us back to himself. Alright, so you guys getting what we're, what, 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 like, there is a path that is better to be on. God's word illuminates that path. There are some paths that you don't want to be on. God's word will help you know. When you get off the path, God's word helps you get back on. God himself comes and pursues us. That brings us to 35. Verse 35. These last three all kind of go together. Verse 35 says this. Direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I find delight. Delight's not a word we use a whole lot these days, okay? But delight has this idea of peace, of blessing, of enjoyment. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. 
Verse 45. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. He walks in freedom because he has found the path that God's word has illuminated. And then the last one, and this one is my favorite. I run, verse 32, I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. I run in the path of your commands. There's something about that idea when I think of the word picture. A freedom that is found within God's commands because it creates a path of safety. A path you can actually run on, like sprint and play and horse around and because you're not afraid of what's going to happen to you. There's actually freedom that's found within the confines. Freedom is found in God's word, not our feelings, not in what our culture tries to sell us. Freedom, life, purpose, joy, these things have always been found within the path of God's word. So I was trying to think, like, all right, what do I do to help us understand this concept a little bit more? So this thing's been sitting up here, and you're probably like, okay, is there like a bigger deal? It looks like it's falling down on the side. That's okay, hopefully it doesn't fall over. There, there's not, the, the big reveal is probably this, not so much what I'm about to show you, but the fact that uh, besides being a pastor, I'm also a painter, okay? So this is a, a painting that I did uh, a couple years ago. And I paint under the name Free. Alright, that's so if you ever got like a Facebook invite to uh, somebody called Free, you're like, what the world? That was for me, so. <laughs> so uh, the reason that I chose the word Free is for a whole number, a whole host of different reasons. I just like the freedom that painting uh, allows me. I, I work with people uh, all the time, which is my love. Uh, but there's something about painting that's actually very uh, just me and a canvas. And, and, and I, I, I like the concept that I don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks. I can paint stuff that I enjoy, that I find beautiful. Uh, but the real reason is actually uh, because of the canvas itself. You see, the canvas actually gives a boundary to the paint. And that's what actually allows for freedom. You can do anything you want within this, and it's great, but you can't go outside of it. You're like, well, yeah, but like, that seems so limiting. It seems so limiting by a canvas. Like you can't go, well that's the whole point. That the boundaries actually allow the beauty to exist. Actually allow the freedom of expression and movement. The boundaries actually is what gives us freedom. Uh, to a lot of folks, even within the art world, initially they want to stop at that. Partly because I think that we live in a post-truth culture that cares much more about autonomy than it actually does about freedom. You see, autonomy always leads to destruction. Unfettered autonomy is like sweet poison. It's delicious in the mouth, but it always ends our lives. Uh, freedom, on the other hand, assumes and requires that there are boundaries. See, I hear people talk about God's words sometimes, like, oh, it's so antiquated, or... Well, I don't like what it says in this particular thing, so therefore I'm going to write it off as well as culture. Or, well, you know what, uh, I like these other parts, so that's really what I focus on. Uh, the problem with that is we don't get to choose. If you don't have a fixed point of reference, you'll never know which way you're going. Now, I get it. Trust me, there are things about God's Word that I would love to make different. 
things that I tell God, like, God, why did you do that? Why did you create us this way? Why did you say that thing? But at the end of the day, if I'm doing that, if I'm deciding what's scripture or what's not scripture, then I'm God. And that, that's really kind of the, the definition. <laughs> and what I found is that there's actual amazing, beautiful, life-giving freedom within the boundaries of scripture. Jesus himself actually said this. John chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth, what? Will set you free. The truth will set you free. A few chapters later, John chapter 14, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father apart from me. Jesus doesn't say that he knows the truth or he speaks the truth. Jesus actually says he is the truth. That nobody gets to the Father apart from him. Now, I get it, man. This is incredibly exclusivist language. All right? Which doesn't fly well in our culture. But if Scripture truly is from God, if Scripture truly sits as a fixed point of reference, then even when scripture clashes with my culture, and it does from time to time, I have to trust the unmoving word of God, that what it says is actually true. And that if I live within the path of those commands, that I actually find great freedom, great joy, I actually find life and life to the full. Because the one who created everything has now explained to me how best to enjoy that creation. Look, I know today is kind of a deep, like we got into like truth and post-truth and post-modernism. Like I, I, I just thanks for hanging with me. But I think that it's incredibly important that we engage with some of the ideas of our day. And the truth is, Psalm 119 was something that we decided to put on the calendar a while ago. And I've been thinking about this concept for a number of years. Abhi Murray is just way smarter than me, so I'm going to steal some of his thoughts on it. But the reality is, is, God's Word has been speaking to some of these things forever. I run in the path of your commands. Ah, I love that. Look, friends, uh, if you want freedom, you have to pursue truth. If you want freedom, you have to pursue truth. If you want light and light to the full, you have to pursue this book. Not life and life to the full, you have to pursue this book. Because in this book are living words of a living God who wants what's best for you. He said to Israel, He has plans to prosper, not to harm, to give hope in the future. That's, that's what's in this book. That's what we find in God's Word. So, friends, uh, all throughout the Psalms, and in this one too, you'll hear things about meditating on God's Word. Uh, we talked about that week one. Remember that? When I said God wants you to be a sommelier? Right? Remember that dude that drank the wine? He's like, right? He's like, it's got this and that, and I smelled cut flowers and white lilies and fresh tennis balls opened up. And it's a great time. <laughs> <laughs> 
wine comes from this region, from this grower, it's this bottle from this year. And he's thinking, nailed it. Why? Because he'd become an expert on wine. Because he had spent so much time learning about it, developing his palate, his nose. That's what God wants for us. That we would read, reflect, and respond to God's word. <coughs> and in it, in it, we will find life and life in full. Let's pray. God, thanks for the privilege we have of opening your word. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that you didn't just set us on this earth and then leave us to figure things out. You are God who's desperate to communicate to your creation. That's why you didn't leave us without yourself coming down as a person, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, entering into our world, taking the punishment that we deserve, dying on the cross in our place, and being raised back to life. God, that's why we believe, because Jesus is alive. God, help us to love your word. God, even when it comes in contradiction to maybe the culture or our own feelings or what we want. God, I'll admit there's things that I would rather probably have different. But I will trust you. And I will seek you in this book. Because I know it holds the words of life. Thank you for loving us enough to give it to us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your church. It's in your beautiful and powerful name of prayer. Amen. Guys, thanks so much for hanging with us today. Thanks for diving into something so deep. I'm super excited because next week, a good buddy of mine, his name is Rob Flint. He's a pastor down in Wayland. He's going to be here speaking on Psalm 23. I get to be down at his church speaking uh, uh, down there. And I'm super excited. You guys are not going to want to miss it. Have a fantastic rest of your day. The sun's coming out later. And those of you with motorcycles, we are going to ride. Let's go. <laughs>